You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We are in chapter 13 of the book. Chapter 13. And so let me say one other thing with regard to this. We are moving faster through the book in terms of history than we're moving in the syllabus. And so this is a little bit of a balancing act in that there are, there are concepts and controversies being brought up in the reading that we haven't gotten to yet. And I don't want to get lost in that. So that's an unfortunate reality of, of um, I don't know, of the way the book lines up with what I'm trying to do. Poor, uh, poor planning, yes, that would also be it. So we're, we're into Chalcedonian controversies, and we are not yet to Chalcedon in your syllabus. We've just put in the, rap, the finishing wraps on Nicaea this, the, this evening, and then we're going to look at, at um, um, Carthage in uh, 397, uh, and that's going to occupy us for a couple of weeks before we get to Chalcedon, and we will be then even further ahead in the reading. Okay, so sorry about that. That's just kind of the way it goes. So with all of that said, chapter 13, Leo the Great. Talk to me about Leo the Great. What stands out to you from your reading, good, bad, lessons learned, unforeseen, Consequences. Summarize Christology with uh, Christ that be fully God and fully human. Okay, so he was significant in the in the resolution of the Christological controversy over the humanity and deity. That's right. That's right. Now, see, it was about what the deity of Christ. Now, see, is all about the deity of Christ. And it invites the Trinitarian controversies. They have been settled, historically, by this point, by the point of Leo. Now it is the controversy, Christological controversies, with regard to the humanity and deity of Christ. How do they relate? Okay? And so maybe just even setting the table for that just a little bit. There's a chart up there that I've got for you. Hopefully you can see it. It summarizes the four main heretical views that were circulating. You'll see it on page 95 in your textbook in the footnote. He references Arianism, Apollinarianism, and Nestorianism. You'll see it as to what they are, and here they are pictorially. Right? So in Arianism, Arian denied what? Divinity or the deity of Christ. Okay? Jesus was a, the, the first created being, much higher than humanity. This is in Arius' understanding. But he was not God. Okay? So you see the picture, you've got the X through the D. <laughs> so he denied, the, he denied the deity of Christ. Nestorianism, you see there, you have humanity and deity, and Nestorianism denied the the uh, unity 
of the two natures. So Nestorius taught the, the mistaken notion, and again, we're going to look at this, I promise you, but the mistaken idea that the humanity and deity existed simultaneously within Christ, uh, two natures in Christ. Okay? So, you see it here. He claimed that Jesus was two persons, the human person and the divine person. So, I misspoke just then when I said two natures. It is two natures in one person. He denied, he denied the one person of Christ. So he said there were two persons operating simultaneously. Eutychianism denies the distinction between the measures or between the natures of Christ. Right? So uh, we, we, See that on page 96 in your reading. First full paragraph. Uh, Let's see, kind of in the middle it says, uh, beginning on the left-hand side, before the incarnation there were two natures, deity and humanity, but after the incarnation there was only one nature, a brand new nature. The divine nature was no longer divine, the human nature was no longer human. So, Eutychianism. So you have Jesus the Christ, not really human, not really divine. Something else. And then we have Apollinarianism. And you see that where he denied the, the human spirit. Jesus had a human spirit. As, the state, as it stated here in your, in your book on 95, claimed Christ was not fully human. He had a human body, but the rest was deity. So it's the idea that, that Jesus was just a, just a body without spirit, soul. Just a body, okay? So another ancient heresy. So Leo managed to cut through all of this and propose a very uh, helpful and what we would say largely orthodox understanding of the nature and person of Christ. Okay. I'm looking here to see where um, well, yeah, let's go ahead and I'll just, you can see it, you read along on page 97 on the bottom. This is what he wrote in his, his written work, the Tome. For not only is God believed to be both Almighty and the Father, but the Son is shown to be co-eternal with him, differing in nothing from the Father because he is God from God. Almighty from Almighty, and being born from the Eternal One is co-eternal with Him, not later in point of time, not lower in power, not unlike, the glo- not unlike in glory, not divided in essence, but at the same time the only begotten of the Eternal Father was born eternally, eternal of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and this nativity which took place in time took nothing from and added nothing to that divine eternal birth. 
but expended itself wholly on the restoration of man who had been deceived in order that he might vanquish death and overthrow by his strength the devil who possessed the power of death. For we should not now be able to overcome the author of sin and death unless, and here's the key money phrase, unless he took on our nature, unless he took our nature on him and made it his own, who could neither sin nor uh, could pollute, uh, ah, whom neither sin could pollute nor death retain. So the basic idea being is that unless Christ took on humanity in its fullest sense, he could not redeem us. And unless he is God in the fullest sense, then the, then the value of his sacrifice is not eternally worthy to expunge our sin. You can think of it this way. What is the just punishment of sin? It is death. It is eternal death. It is eternal death. So in order to... to expiate in order to in order to satisfy justice and to take that penalty then the sacrifice has to be able to suffer eternal death on behalf of those whom he saves no man no matter how virtuous could possibly offer themselves to fulfill the requirement of the law on you and I if a man could do that, it would only be sufficient for that man's redemption. Exactly. It's exactly. He could not purchase for another. Yeah. At best, he could walk perfectly before the law. And only been an unprofitable servant. And been an unprofitable servant. Yes. Right. So, you see the necessity of his full divinity in that the, the sacrifice has to have enough value to expunge the eternal debt that you and I owe. That's what I'm saying is, on the cross, Jesus suffered eternal damnation for you in a moment in time. An eternity of wrath for you in a moment in time. How is that possible? He is the eternal one. And unless he shares your humanity, body, soul, spirit, or soul, spirit, however you, however you like it, then he cannot save that which he does not bear. In other words, if he were a body only, then he could save your body, but he couldn't save your soul. And so he must be human in all respects. And as it says in Hebrews, yet without sin. And again, to belabor the point, but it's worth it. That means that, that sin is not essential to you and I. Sin is the intruder. Sin is not essential to humanity. Sin has intruded into humanity. We will be redeemed from sin. Okay. Six nineteen at night. You're tired. <laughs> Give me some help here. A nod. A question. Uh, I don't agree with that. I'd even take that at the moment. Go for it. Not a comment, just a 
Yes. 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 Uh huh. That's right. Very good. Good to point that out. That's right. He he was the first Roman bishop to overtly argue the case that the bishop of Rome was indeed the unworthy heir, but nonetheless of the apostle Peter, on whom Jesus had was building his church. In other words, establishing the the later notion that is more codified that the the Pope bears a direct apostolic succession all the way back to Peter. So Peter becomes the first Pope and and so forth. Okay, I'm going to argue that uh, that Gregory the Great was the first Pope, but you'll see that. Okay, all right, good. Anything else with regard to Leo that we want to talk about? Question, yeah. No, no dumb questions here. Right. So in the Old Testament, the animals were offered to atone for the sin of, of the people. But they had to offer it over and over and over again because it was never able to expunge their sin fully and finally. In other words, animal sacrifice was of an insufficient value to do that. So he had to be a man to die. So there's one. <laughs> and in order to fully identify with us, right, he couldn't, it, I mean, this would be weird, but like the idea that the second person of the Trinity could somehow take anything other than the highest of creation, which is man, is really not possible to be an adequate sacrifice. So unless he, unless he fully identifies with whatever he's trying to redeem, he would be unable to redeem him. And I, my, my brain is in rapid movement at the moment trying to think of an exact verse that says that. Right, Romans chapter 5. So sin entered through Adam. We are all united with Adam. We need to be united in a new humanity. Good, thank you. God had to do he had to be a man to live under the law perfectly, yes, to, to donate to us the righteousness he had earned under the law. That was good. Okay, so let's summarize what we've got here. So we've got, we all die in Adam. We need a new humanity to be reunited with, to start again. We need a perfect humanity, so one who has perfectly fulfilled the law. We need one to bear the curse for us perfectly. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. We need uh, to, yes, restore, restore the glory of God ultimately. That is, the, that is the final plan. It is not our redemption, but the means by which the glory of God is displayed is through our redemption. So, yes. Okay, good. Any other thoughts? Simon? Okay, good. So in order to be our high priest, he has to be a man. Anything else with Leo that sticks out for us? Maybe just one uh, on page 100 in the, under the conclusion. Just kind of, you could almost just pass over it, but uh, let's see. Well, maybe we'll just read the whole conclusion. He says, Leo the Great was the key person to bring together previous theological thought as well as to challenge the most recent 
threatening thoughts regarding the person of Jesus Christ. The result, the result was Chalcedonian Christology, which can be summarized in this way. The incarnation resulted in two natures, deity and humanity, in one person, Jesus Christ. Combining this with Nicene theology, it can be characterized as follows. God is three whos, persons, and one what, nature. Jesus Christ is one who, person, and two whats, nature. There were few groups that did not accept the declarations of Chalcedon. Some churches in the area of Syria followed Nestorian theology. Some churches in Egypt followed Eutychian theology and came to be known as monophysite, one-nature churches. The present-day Coptic church would be one such example. Uh, however, generally speaking, Chalcedonian Christology has been accepted as orthodoxy in the Western church and most of the Eastern church. The thought that just occurred to me as I read that and, uh, was the statement about the Coptic church in Egypt. So if the Coptic church in Egypt is Nestorian in their understanding of Christ, and if, if a Nestorian understanding of Christ is out of bounds, it is a heretical view, it is a, it is a sub-Christian um, view of the nature and person of Christ, then in what sense is the Coptic church Christian? Lowercase c question mark. If you have the wrong Savior, are you Christian? I think the answer has to be no. What if you're sincerely wrong? I'll leave it with you to muse on, but wrong God, wrong salvation. Okay, let's move on and uh, talk about that guy from Florida. Okay, the doctor of the church. Augustine. What do we know about Augustine? Before we look at the thing that has probably most marked his life. <laughs> what do we know about him? Okay, yep. So he was born into a Christian family through his mother's influence, Monica, right? So he had a Christian up upbringing. It says here he, he gave intellectual assent to Christianity. Until he went to college? Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Studied what in college? Philosophy. What does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? That was Tertullian, remember him? What happened as a result of his studies of philosophy? He embraced Manichaeism. That's right. What is Manichaeism? Anybody? That's right. The yin and the yang. Star Wars, the force. That kind of an idea. That's right. So it's just equal struggle between good and evil. That's Manichaeism. Yep. Okay. So he lasted there a while. Then what happened? So after leaving Manichaeism, he embraced Neoplatonism and moved to Milan, began listening to Ambrose, was a powerful preacher, powerful orator. What was his preaching style? Allegorical. Okay. Allegorical preaching would appeal to someone who was a Neoplatonist. And so he did come under conviction, because why? What kind of a lifestyle was he maintaining the whole time? Pursuit of the lust of the flesh, a debauched lifestyle. That's exactly right. And he felt great guilt because of his 
debauched lifestyle because probably the Christian upbringing and the fact that his mother followed him everywhere he went and prayed for him. Thank God for a faithful mother who will follow you around and pray for you, right? Hound you. The hounds of heaven will chase you. Okay? He was in the garden weeping over his sin. And he heard a small, still voice. Yes. Voice. Yes. That's right. So take up and read. Take up and read. That's it. 13, 13, he read Romans 13, 13 and 14. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. He was converted. That's probably not what somebody might choose as a gospel passage, per se. So he was converted. Genuinely converted to Christ. How did someone just... just well, he was, a, he was a powerful intellect. He was a, he was a, a, a um, trained orator. And so he turned that training and giftedness to the proclamation of the gospel and to writing. Right, he's a prolific writer, verse, or page 103, under contribution, first sentence, was a prolific writer, second only to origin in his literary legacy. So here's a guy who produced a lot of stuff. Okay? Important stuff. Okay. I also wonder if Ambrose, the bishop, took him under his wing and discipled him and mentored him. Perhaps. Perhaps. Yeah? Okay? So, I mean, there's just so much about his life. Um, well, you see his influence on page 104. We looked at this last time at the Council of Toledo with the, uh, the adding of the Philoque clause, right? That the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and how the Eastern, Eastern Church objected to them messing with the Nicene Creed in that way and was an important uh, contributing factor to the great schism of 1054 where there was an official splitting of the Catholic Church into Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox at that point. Okay? Never been healed. 105 middle, probably most well-known book, The City of God. And it was written to explain why Christianity was not to blame for the fall of Rome after a thousand years. The prevailing notion among many was that because Rome had rejected the ancient pagan deities, that they were now extracting retribution on, this, on the city by the, the Germanic tribes who were sacking the city of Rome. The ancient city of Rome was sacked. And uh, so he wrote this book, The City of God, as a defense of why Christianity was not the, re you know, not the cause of the fall of Rome in that way. Okay? Yes. Right. That's a good question. Yeah, due to the confessions in Western thought, last sentence here, 
at least people began to think of themselves primarily as individuals, Christianity also became more individualistic in emphasis. Prior to that, we thought of ourselves as members of the human race, members of the church, and so forth. Uh, I would imagine the church wasn't enthralled with that idea, uh, although the Roman church was, was far from its pinnacle of power. That doesn't occur for another 500 years when they had their own standing army and things like that. Um, but yeah, that's interesting because we are the um, beneficiaries, I guess, of that line of Augustinian thought that we individually stand before God, right? That you have to make a personal decision, faith in Christ, that kind of an idea. Corporate solidarity is much more foreign concept to us, although there's plenty of biblical evidence for the, those kinds of concepts as well. Okay, good. Thank you. All right, let's just do this so we don't completely spend our time in this book um, talking about things that we're not going to talk about for a few weeks. So let's talk about, um, you know, the big, the big issue, which was his controversy with Pelagius. 107, page 107, first full paragraph. Second and maybe most important controversy faced by Augustine was prompted by Pelagius. What do we know about Pelagius? He was a British monk. Okay. Strike one. Anything else we know about him? Anything good about Pelagius? Anything? Augustinian. <laughs> Go ahead. He was upset with uh, the sin of Rome. Yes, he was absolutely disgusted and horrified with the with the debauchery that existed in the city of Rome among those who professed the name of Christ. Christianity in general had fallen to such a low level. Why? Well, because the concept of if you're a citizen, you're a Christian meant that everybody's Christian. If everybody's Christian, maybe nobody's Christian. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't believe in the original sin, but we were not affected by Adam's That's right. So Pelagius um, reasoned that God would not have commanded us to be holy because I am holy if it were not possible for us to obey that command. And so, yes, he denied original sin and postulated the idea that someone somewhere could live in perfection under the law. Right? Middle of the Last paragraph on 107, Adam's sin did not affect anyone else other than providing a bad example. Pelagius went so far as to say it's possible to live a sinless life without any help from God. Sin was not inevitable. Okay? He taught that we are sinners because we sin. Augustine taught the opposite of that. What did Augustine teach? We sin because we're sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We're constituted sinners in union with Adam. In union with Adam. 
So let's do this. Let's just look at the chart. So we have Pelagianism here. Summarize, man is born essentially good and capable of doing what is necessary for salvation. Pelagianism was declared a full heresy. Okay. All right. Then we have Augustinianism. Augustinianism says that man is dead in sin. Salvation is totally by the grace of God, which is given only to the elect. So we have these two diametrically opposed understandings of sin and salvation and the grace of God. So John Cassian comes along later. We, we read about him somewhere in here. Okay? The grace of God and the will of man work together in salvation, in which man must take the initiative. Semi-Pelagianism. Uh, they attempted to argue from Scripture, yes. Uh, I wouldn't say there's a strong argument, but there is an argument that was made, and not, I would argue through a misunderstanding of the text, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you be holy as, as I am holy. Pelagius says that's a command that, that if God gave, then you have the ability to fulfill. And then we have Sevi Augustinianism. The grace of God comes to all, enabling a person to choose and perform what is necessary for salvation. Okay? So, let's look at semi-Augustinianism. The grace of God comes to all, enabling a person to choose and perform what is necessary for salvation, which would be to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, is what they would say. Okay? So they're not, they're not postulating a works Righteousness. What does that sound like? Sounds like Arminianism. (laughs) Error. (laughs) Right? Sounds like evangelical Arminianism. So why is plagiarism heresy and so much Augustinianism? Well, as he... Uh, does he say it here? What basically what he says is that the the church never fully got on board with full Augustinianism. Luther revived it. Calvin embraced it. It is the reformed tradition for sure, and I think it is an accurate representation of exactly what. The gospel involves. But we are saved by the atoning work of Christ, not by our theology. So are there, let's see, I'm careful how I want to say this. Uh, could someone believe a suboptimal or have a suboptimal understanding of the work of salvation, and still be saved? I think we'd have to conclude yes. Right? And the reason I think, here's the reason I conclude yes. I'm saved, and I started with a suboptimal view. 
How many of you guys were saved in Armenian settings? Let's have some hands. How many? Probably half the room. (coughs) Because why? Because we repented of our sin and we trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were saved. And then our... Over time, our theology began to develop as we pushed into the Scriptures and as we were taught and so forth. And so our understanding expanded and and clarified and focused and so forth. But the saving work of Christ didn't change. Didn't change. So we should teach the truth. We should disciple to the truth. We should preach the truth. But we should be gracious with people who come with a less than ideal understanding. Not out and out, right? Pelagianism is out of bounds. <laughs> One would think so. It's hard to misunderstand. But, you know, it's by mm-hmm. grace that you've been saved. Yes. And they would say grace, right? To be charitable. The grace of God and the will of man were together. So they would postulate a provenient grace that works to enliven people to believe. The other one, grace of God comes to all, enabling them to believe. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, these, these categories are just what, systematic theology writers have put on them through the years to try to categorize such things. Okay, So they depend on the grace of God. To, to, to Anything that postulates something other than that is absolutely out of bounds and to leave you lost in sin. Yeah. Well, your author tells you in page 107, second paragraph, Uh, He says he was, so he's stunned by the rampant immorality and how it was being justified theologically by a statement like, I was born a sinner, therefore I really can't do anything about it. So that was highly offensive to him. And you know what? That's highly offensive to me. That kind of an idea. Okay? I just, I have a different response. (laughs) So... He was further upset when he became aware of Augustine's confession, specifically its most famous statements addressed to God. Give the grace to do what you command and command what you will. To Pelagius, this seemed to make God a grand puppeteer of people and took away human responsibility for sin. So his misunderstanding, and I've heard it often repeated by others, that if you believe in in the doctrines of grace, you have made God out to be a puppet master. Where, you know, where is your will in this matter? Does he just you know, do these things? You believe because you're elect. And, and that Augustinian understanding can also run into a ditch and did in the, uh, the 18th century with regard to world missions. When... when People would say things like, if God wanted the pagans to believe, then he would send somebody to them. Right? Speak to them from heaven, whatever. But nobody would go. 
so kind of the Augustinian ditch is, a, is it, it devolves into a fatalism. And fatalism is not a Christian concept. So I think, where, where, where are we? Oh, yeah. So I think those are some of the, the reasons that provoked him. Now, um, was he a spawn of Satan? Yeah, I think, he, I think so. Yeah, that's my that's my conclusion of him, is that he was that he is a, a spawn of Satan in that the, it, it, he postulated a an understanding that would damn the entire humanity. He wasn't just a little wrong. Yep, pride pride does play in. That's true. Yes, it is. And then the danger is it becomes a license to sin. That's the that's that other ditch that one can fall into. It is. it is. You know what? You are absolutely right. I praise God that <laughs> that people get saved whose theology is bent. Okay. Uh, Gregory the Great, you know what? Uh, he didn't really write too much about him, and that's fine with me because I'm going to spend a, a far more time with him than he did. Okay, we're at page 14. Uh, it's actually page 13 at the bottom, I think, in your syllabus. Is that right? Athanasius, page 13 on the bottom? Is that true? Okay. So, Athanasius, Egyptian by birth, Greek by education, small of stature, keen of mind, powerful of pen. He was a deacon of the church in Alexandria, serving under Bishop Alexander of Alexandria, and accompanying him to the Council of Nicaea that was, as you remember, called by Constantine to resolve the, the dispute within the church, particularly the Eastern Church, that was threatening the unity of the empire. Uh, I'm not on a page. Well, I'm I'm talking and uh, referring to page 13, where you have a little box that's got his his name and, and his dates. That's it. <laughs> so you can write down whatever you like. Uh, he is in your book. I think he's like chapter nine or something in your book. Okay, page 71 of the book. And we we looked at it. I think didn't we, or did we just flat skip over it? We just flat skipped over it. Okay, sweet. All right, let me give it to you. Okay, after I finish with his just his background a little bit. So he was a combative man, uh, which is a good thing when it's enlisted for proper causes. <laughs> and so he was tireless in his opposition of Arianism, because as you'll remember, when we covered the Council of Nicaea, although the council was virtually unanimous in their declaration of the full deity of Christ, I think there were only two or three bishops that dissented, Many who signed it were less than persuaded, and a man persuaded against his will remains of the same opinion still. And that revealed itself in the fortunes of poor Athanasius, in that he was deposed five times and sent into exile for a total of 17 years, because depending which uh, bishop had the ear of the emperor, and worked their political will, then the then Arianism or Nicene Christology would rise and fall, would ebb and flow within the empire. And that was to a large degree because many of the bishops who signed it were not really 
didn't perhaps didn't really understand the issues or were not committed to the issues. So I would say that he uh, single-handedly preserved the church and protected it from Arianism in much the same way that Martin Luther single-handedly recovered the gospel. Now, does that mean that if Martin Luther hadn't existed, the gospel would have lost forever? No, but he was certainly very, very instrumental uh, in but use of the Lord in the recovery of the gospel in the 16th century. So Athanasius in the in the resisting the the pernicious heresy of Arianism. And again, wrong Christ, no salvation. Arianism's modern uh, adherents are the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? who would who are outside of redemption. Okay, so Athanasius rooted his Christology, and this is kind of the, the money statement, and it's taken from a book called "Great Leaders of the Christian Church," page sixty-seven. If you want to look it up sometime. Athanasius rooted his Christology in redemption. Since only God is righteous enough to satisfy the demands of his own justice. Right? So you see how he's, he's working here, so how he's reasoning. Since, God, uh, since only God is righteous enough to satisfy the demands of his own justice, for that reason, our salvation could only be guaranteed by God himself become man and did the impossible, which is to die for us, so that we too might do the impossible, become like God. Okay. So, beginning with a right understanding of what redemption actually is, led him to a right understanding of the person of Christ, the deity of Christ. Okay. Athanasius. Okay, let's move to Carthage. I've been told it's a nice place. It's in North Africa. And in particular here, I want to look with you at the Council of Carthage in 8397. So, we're on page 14. Let me set a little background behind this. So, for the first 15 years of the church... Christianity had no authoritative writings except for the Old Testament and its Greek translation, the Septuagint. In other words, it was a, it was a, a message communicated orally. There was no written product, no written documents. Proclamation was by word of mouth. Doctrinal and practical issues, though, begin to give rise in the churches. And so the, the apostles and their close associates were forced to address these issues, and they did so in writing. So, for example, James is our first epistle that is written to address these problems in the churches sometime in the late 40s, okay, sometime in the late 40s. And the last three epistles written were 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, sometime in the late 90s. Now, as Christianity spread throughout 
the Mediterranean, you know, the, the Mediterranean rim, if I can say it that way. Uh, the eyewitnesses became scarce. You remember, Paul talks about the 500 who witnessed the resurrected Christ. So when, when, when the church is confined geographically to Palestine, then the 500 witnesses, there's enough of them around that you can hear from eyewitness testimony. But as it begins to expand out through the empire, there's just not enough eyewitnesses around. And so the evangelists, as they're known, set their preaching message to a text. They wrote it, they wrote it out. The Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthew is the earliest, sometime late 50s. Luke, 60-ish. Mark, late 60s. And then John, the final one, late 80s. Approximate dates. Now there's a written testimony that can go throughout the throughout the empire, right? So the, the disciples witnessed everything that Christ did, his resurrection, and they wrote it down, and now that authoritative document can begin to go out and be a, be a witness. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the world. The book of Acts covers approximately the first 30 years of the church's history. So the book of Acts closes in Acts 28. Where is Paul? There, you remember? He's in Rome. He's he's held in um, confinement in Rome, but not in a prison cell. He's in his own rented quarters. He's able to receive... Yes, he's able to write and send letters to Philippi and Colossae and so forth. You get to Second Timothy, his last letter, different situation. Confined to prison, it just it's it it just bleeds the reality that he knows his days are very, very short. Finally, the book of Revelation, the the plan for the future was written around 95, around 80-95, and closes it out. John was the youngest of the apostles and lived the longest. When Revelation was written, when John put down his pen, then the canon was closed. The canon was closed. In other words... At that moment, the Scripture had all the authority it would ever have. It just took time to recognize it. It took time to recognize it. So, the Council of Carthage was the first church council to lay down the official limits of the New Testament Canon, Greek kanon, it means reed or measuring rod. So the word canon means a, a measuring rod or a, a reed, which was 
an ancient measuring device. The relevant wording in the council itself is as follows. And further, it was resolved that nothing should be read in church under the name of divine scriptures except the canonical writings. The canonical writings then are these of the New Testament, the four books of the Gospels, one book of the Acts of the Apostles, 13 epistles of the Apostle Paul, the one epistle to the Hebrews by the same, so you can see where they committed themselves, two of the Apostle Peter, three of John, one of James, one of Jude, John's Apocalypse, one book. Let it be permitted, however, that the passions of the martyrs be read when their anniversaries are celebrated. Remember, I read you the, the passion of the, um, of the death of Polycarp, that it was written and distributed. Okay? So, based on the late date of this council, right, 397, 8397, we're, at, we're here at the end of the 4th century. So, based on the late date of this council, some would have us believe that the question of which books were part of the canon and which were not was an unsettled issue for the first 300 years of the church. There are some that will argue this. Some would further have us to believe that because the council established the canon, quotation marks, that the Bible is subject to the church rather than the church being subject to the Bible. That is a huge question. The correct view of the canon is to view it as a collection of authoritative writings with the authority resting in the fact of inspiration rather than in the authority of the collecting agency. Look at it again. A collection of authoritative writings with the authority resting in the fact of inspiration rather than the authority of the collecting agency. This, um, let's see, we'll do it this way. You'll see it better. This survey of Old Testament introduction by Gleason Archer, I would highly recommend to anyone who is serious about Old Testament studies. Very, very fine book. 582 pages, but it does have pictures. Show us a page. How big is the print? Nice. You can, yeah, you can buy my yellowed copy for. Uh, I paid $27.99 in January of 2001. So I have no idea what it costs now. So, but I want to read something to you. It is called A Survey of Old Testament Introduction by Gleason Archer. It is a classic text. Do you use this text? Yeah, let me, let me, I'm trying to see if you're an old fossil, so it might not have been required. Well, actually, it probably was. We had it. It was just uh, Ni- stone. Yeah. <laughs> 1964, original copyright. Updated in 74 and 94. Yeah. So what I want to do is, I want to I read to you a section here. So this is what Gleason Archer has to say, and it, he says it so well. The only true test of canonicity, okay, that's a test of does this belong in the canon, the, the collection, the measuring rod of divine truth. 
The only test, true test of canonicity which remains is the testimony of God the Holy Spirit to the authority of his own word. This testimony found a response of recognition, faith, and submission in the hearts of God's people who walked in covenant fellowship with him. As E.G. Young puts it, quote, to these and other proposed criteria we must reply with a negative. The canonical books of the Old Testament were divinely revealed and their authors were holy men who spoke as they were born of the Holy Ghost. In his good providence, God brought it about that his people should recognize and receive his word. How he planted this conviction in their hearts with respect to the identity of his word, we may not be able to fully understand or explain. We may, however, follow our Lord, who placed the imprimatur of his infallible authority upon the books of the Old Testament. Question, how do we know that the collection of 39 books in the Old Testament is the Word of God, is the inspired Word of God. The answer is that Christ himself placed his stamp of approval upon them. We may go further than this and point out that in the nature of the case, we could hardly expect any other valid criteria than this. If canonicity is a quality somehow imparted to the books of Scripture by any kind of human decision, as liberal scholars unquestionably assume, and as even the Roman Catholic Church implies by her self-contradictory affirmation that, quote, the Church is the mother of the Scripture, close quote, then perhaps a set of mechanical tests could be set up to determine which writings to accept as authoritative and which to regret, uh, to reject. But if, on the other hand, a sovereign God has taken the initiative in Revelation and in the production of the inspired word of that revelation through human agents, it must simply be a matter of recognition of the quality already inherent by divine act in the books so inspired. When a child recognizes his own parent from a multitude of other adults at some public gathering, he does not impart any new quality of parenthood by such an act. He simply recognizes the relationship which already exists. So also with lists of authoritative books drawn up by ecclesiastical synods or councils. They did not impart canonicity to a single page of Scripture. They simply acknowledged the divine inspiration of religious documents which were inherently canonical from the time they were first composed and formally rejected other books for which canonicity had been falsely claimed. Okay, so what is he saying? What he is ultimately saying is this, that the only true test of canonicity is the testimony of God the Holy Spirit to the authority of his own word. Okay, that's the only test. How do we know the Bible is the word of God? God says so. The Spirit of God who inspired it, testifies to us as to its authenticity. Now, if you know anything about Mormonism, now you're probably feeling a little uncomfortable because that's what they claim. That's what they claim. The difference is that Mormonism is inherently self-contradictory. 
They claim to believe the Bible while they at the same time deny the Bible. Christianity is not self-contradictory. But the only sure and infallible test is the Spirit of God testifying to his own work. In other words, the Bible is of divine origin. And we must receive it by faith in the same way every other aspect is received by faith. Now, it's not a it's not just a blind leap in the dark. Okay? So, evidences of canonicity. Are there evidences of canonicity? Yes, there are. Okay? So we're not we're not arguing that there is no evidence at all. We believe this, you know, with no lack of evidence. There is evidence. But we believe it by faith. We know it to be true. I'm going to demonstrate it to you. Unfortunately, not tonight. It's going to have to be next week. Oh, we just don't have enough time. But let's just look at the, the scriptural evidence of canonicity. So we have these circular letters. Okay? Circular letters. In other words, letters that were written to be distributed among many churches or to be uh, passed on from one church to another. So you see it in, uh, in Galatians, for example. Galatians 1-2. And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So the letter to the Galatians was written to multiple churches, spread among multiple. It was designed to be passed on from one church to the next. What they would do is the first church to receive it would make a copy of it and retain the copy and then pass it on. You see it in Colossians 4.16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you for your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. There are some that believe, I'm inclined that way, that that Ephesians was the letter coming from Laodicea. Prison epistles written to be circulated. We have the authority claimed by the authors themselves. So, 1 Corinthians 14.37 If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. 1 Thess 2.13 For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 1 Timothy 5.18 For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, 
and the laborer is worthy of his wages. While you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing is Deuteronomy 25.4. The laborer is not worthy of his wages is Luke 10.7. So Paul is putting Deuteronomy and Luke on the same plane and calling them both scripture. And one that's always fun, 2 Peter 3, 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. No kidding. Which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You have Peter's affirmation that Paul's letters are Scripture. So there was a, a self-conscious awareness on the part of the apostles themselves that they were writing Scripture, that they were writing Scripture. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Every, every document written by them was not Scripture. So Paul wrote three letters to Corinth, maybe four. Three, four, what do you think? At least three. Yeah, I, th I think I'm persuaded of four. Which means that, uh, say there's three, there's one missing. Perhaps two. When Paul wrote out a grocery list, it wasn't inspired of God. Yeah. Yeah. If the letter from Laodicea was not Ephesians, then it is a missing letter from Laodicea. <laughs> well, that is an interesting question, isn't it? Because the only true test of canonicity is the testimony of God the Holy Spirit to the authority of his own word. <laughs> That's right. When you come through Laodicea, pick up a pound of butter and Three pounds of beef, yeah. I'll tell you what, here's what I want you to do, okay? I'm, I'm going to add to your reading assignment for this week. So we don't do it in class, but we just don't have time flying around here. We don't have time for this. Go to your appendix in your syllabus. This is your assignment, plus the three chapters for next week, okay? What I want you to do, page 48... Well, actually, uh, yeah, page 48. The Didache. Okay, the Didache. An ancient document that some contended belonged in the script, belonged in the canon. All right, here it is for you. Translated into English. I want you to read it. I want you to read it. And when you're done... I'm willing to bet you that you are going to conclude it is not Scripture. And the reason you're going to conclude it's not Scripture is because the testimony of the Spirit of God will not attest to this as Scripture. It doesn't make the cut. But I want you to read it. And as you read it, you know, take a pencil or something. There's, some, there's really some, I think, funny kind of things written in it. So 
So observe them. We can all laugh together. Now, while we're at this, let's look at... Um, Are the chapter headings part of the true document? No. No, they're just added to... That's right. I just yep. Just to try to find your way around. So, uh, take a look at page 40... Uh, yeah, page 46 in the appendix. We'll, we'll just finish with these two charts. So these books debated for inclusion in the New Testament canon. So you can see the book of Hebrews. It took a while before it was accepted in the canon. All right. Now, was it the word of God from the moment the author put his pen down? Yes. Yes. But it took time to first disperse across the empire. Again, we're talking about a, a time when movement of information is, is slow. It's a long time to get things spread. Particularly, you've got to remember that this stuff is, is spreading during a time of persecution. So, Hebrews. Thought Pauline in the East. Thought non-Pauline, uh, or thought, of, yeah, non-Pauline forgery in the West. So for a period of time, the East and the West could not come to an agreement on the book of Hebrews. So it was later in its universal acceptance. You look at James, Second Peter, so forth. You can, you know, I'm not going to read it to you. You can see it. All right. So there's the Shepherd of Hermes. Contains edifying contents and visions of God, but non-apostolic origin, late date. Excluded. The Didache, record of genuine apostolic traditions, uncertain date, although I think it's early 2nd century. Uh, excluded. Excluded. Okay. The revelation of Peter, doubtful authenticity, excluded. And then the next, page 47. So here you can again kind of see, remember how we talked about controversy is used of God in his providence as a, a refining pot for his people? And so as these heretics uh, questioned or disputed the authenticity of the word of God, it caused the church to have to wrestle with that whole question and clarify things. And so you see there, for example, in the Gnostic oppositions, that um, you have the four Gospels and Acts and the 13 Pauline epistles and so forth. And we find, when we're looking for evidence, we find quotations in the early church fathers. We find them in the Muratorian canon, which is just an early fragment of a document that we have, goes back to, to late 2nd century, so forth. And then you can see the process of final solidification of the herm of the of the final canon. So what's the point? The point is that for Roman Catholic theology, the church formed the Bible at the Council of Carthage. The Protestant understanding is that the Bible formed the church. And how you answer that question 
puts you on two different trajectories. If the church created the canon, it then sits in authority over the Bible. And then the final authority, and Roman Catholic will tell you that the authority of the church lies in the Scripture and the teaching office of the Pope, basically. <laughs> but whenever you have two sources of authority, ultimately one comes in authority over the other. It always happens. They put the Pope above it when he speaks ex cathedra. Yep, that's exactly right. Okay? So, to understand the church in authority, or the, excuse me, the scripture in authority over the church, then the, then the final appeal for us is what says the word? What says the word? So, well, maybe, we'll, you know what? You guys are being patient, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow through this last bit. It's on page 15, and that's fine. Then we'll come back to the Didache. Okay. So you see the God-given process. Individual circulation and gradual collection. You got Clement of Rome. It refers to a, a number of uh, New Testament books in his writings. He gives them equal authority, equal weight with the Old Testament. So already he is recognizing them. The epistles of Polycarp to the Philippians, where you see in in his letter, 12.1, he cites Psalm 4.4 and Ephesians 4.26. He calls them both Scripture. So he's again equating Old and New Testament, calling it Scripture. You have Marcion's heretical canon list. So it's, it's useful, even though he was a heretic, it's useful in that he recognizes one gospel and, and ten Pauline epistles. So even though he is attacking the Scripture, he recognizes a portion of the writings as Scripture. The Muratorian fragments mutilated at the beginning, but it lists all the books in the New Testament. The Apostolic Fathers refer to the New Testament writings when defending the faith or refuting heretics. The Shepherd of Hermes and Didache are also listed as important but not canonical books. And then finally, our buddy Athanasius, this is probably a good way to end, in his Easter letter to the congregation in AD 367, he, he gives a list of all 27 books. So, by that time, it's universally acknowledged. So, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that it is the Word of God the moment it's written, but the process of dispersal and recognition took time. It took time. All right? So, go home and read the Didache, mark it up, come back, we'll talk about it. I'd be willing to bet anyone here that you are not going to think this is scripture. That's right. The exact same process. The Spirit of God testimony to them that these spurious writings were not the Word of God. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.